Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Austin is the capital city of the state of Texas. It has the second largest capital building in the U.S., only being beaten by the nation's capital building in Washington, D.C. The capital of Texas was Houston, but was changed to its current location, which was originally called Waterloo before being changed to honoring Stephen F. Austin, the Republic's first Secretary of State. Austin is also home to the largest urban bat colony in North America. During the spring and summer, one and a half million Mexican free-tailed bats migrate to Austin and live under the Congress Avenue Bridge, where they emerge every night to the delight of onlookers. Charles Whitman believed that perfection was the only option in life. It was an idea that was beaten into him by his father. When he wasn't able to achieve that perfection in his life, he decided to end it, and he was going to take as many people with him as he could. This is Monsters. The 307-foot-tall University of Texas clock tower was completed in 1937 and has remained one of the most distinguished landmarks in Austin. It was originally a closed-stack library where students could search through an extensive card catalog. The card of the book they wanted would be sent upstairs where librarians on roller skates would find the book and then send it back down to the student on a dumbwaiter. Eventually, the system became too inefficient and the school built a new open-stack library, but the tower still contained reading rooms and the observation deck was open to the public. Charles Whitman was born on June 24, 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida to Charles and Margaret Whitman. His father, Charles, was an orphan who pulled himself out of poverty and eventually started his own business as a plumbing contractor. His mother became pregnant with them when she was 18 years old and would go on to have two more sons. Charles was said to have been a happy and polite young boy who got along with everyone. The biggest problem in Charles' childhood was his father. The elder Charles didn't allow mistakes and anyone who made one was in for a physical beating. That included all three boys and their mother. Their father believed that his children weren't deserving of affection just because. They needed to be exceptional before they were worthy of his affection and praise. He also believed that Margaret gave them too much praise. When he would catch her praising any little accomplishment, he would have to correct her behavior. The younger two boys seemed more disconnected from their father, but Charles did everything he could to prove himself. The elder Charles taught his son to hunt early on. His boy was a great shot, but he couldn't stomach killing, so he became a disappointment in his eyes. He used a belt to toughen up his son, and soon, young Charles was outside in the mornings, shooting deer with his father. Charles had effectively had his feelings beaten out of him. When his mother put him in piano lessons when he was five years old, his father placed his belt on the piano as a reminder not to make mistakes. 
Charles quickly mastered the instrument. At school, he tested in the gifted range, so the school put him in advanced classes. The extra work overwhelmed Charles, but he knew he couldn't just get by. He had to be top of his class. He joined the Boy Scouts and became the youngest person to ever become an Eagle Scout at 12 years old. As Charles got older, he began to see that the world outside was not like it was in their home. Other kids didn't have to work their fingers to the bone because their fathers wouldn't accept anything less than perfection. Charles started to develop anger towards his father, but couldn't express it without a severe beating. He began taking his aggression out on the animals around his home. He practiced more and more until he was able to pick off a squirrel from a distance by the time he was 16. As a teenager, Charles began suffering from stomach pain and was taken to the hospital. He had his appendix removed and the hospital stay was a bit of a refuge from his father. When he returned home, he was more aware that his father's relationship with his family was not normal. Charles was starting to plan an escape from his father. He was expected to graduate at the top of his class and head straight to business school, but that wasn't what he really wanted to do. When the school year ended, all of the end-of-year parties started. He went to graduation parties, a party for the baseball team, a party for the Eagle Scouts, and at these parties, having a few beers seemed to help him relax and forget his mounting responsibilities. At a football party, he drank too much and ended up back at home an hour after curfew. He thought his father would be asleep, but he was wrong. When he snuck around the back of the house, he was caught by his father who was sitting outside by the pool. Charles Sr. proceeded to beat his son until he was in a heap on the ground. Then he kicked him in the abdomen, knocking the air out of him. Charles thought that was the end, but then his father used his foot to push him into the pool. Charles waited at the bottom of the pool, wondering if he should just stay there and let the water end his pain and suffering. But eventually self-preservation kicked in and he pulled himself out of the pool. He dragged himself to his bedroom, stripped off his wet clothes, and collapsed into bed. Charles spent the next few days recovering from his beating, making sure to stay out of his father's line of sight. On July 6, 1959, he took a train to Paris Island, South Carolina, and joined the United States Marine Corps. When Charles Sr. found out, he immediately got on the phone and called in favor after favor until he was talking to someone with at least a little bit of power in the federal government. He explained that his son wasn't fit to serve and asked for his enlistment to be canceled. <laughs> the United States military was not about to give up a smart, fit Eagle Scout who knew how to handle a firearm. Charles Sr. learned that he couldn't bully everyone and had to tuck his tail between his legs. The Marine Corps was keeping his son. At basic training, Charles excelled. Getting up early, keeping his bunk spotless, obeying every command, these were the things that Charles had been doing his entire life. While other young men were struggling to adapt to the rigid environment, Charles was at home in it. He scored high on every test, in his physical fitness, and especially at the range. He didn't quite earn enough points to earn an expert badge, but he was considered a sharpshooter and his fellow Marines celebrated his achievements with him. Charles was assigned an 18-month tour of duty at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Guantanamo Bay is largely known as the place the U.S. houses enemy combatants and has suffered some controversy, but it had a long history before that. Cuba leased the land to the U.S. in 1903, but by the time Charles arrived there at the end of 1959, the Cuban Revolution was ending and the controlling government was claiming the U.S. presence in Cuba was not legal under international law. 
Charles would have been there during the very beginnings of tension mounting between the two countries. He also left before the start of the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. His time there was mostly spent training. While there, he was seen as a perfect candidate to become an officer, but he needed a college degree in order to be accepted into the officer training academy. He was told by the Marine Corps that they would pay for him to go to school for mechanical engineering, and he was enrolled in a program at the University of Texas in Austin. When Charles arrived on campus, it was a culture shock. He had lived in one neighborhood his entire life, then he was on a military base in Cuba, which wasn't what you would call an exciting place. The campus alone had so much diverse activity, then he went into the city and experienced more things in one day than he had seen his entire life up to that point. Classwork came easy to Charles. It was sure easier than basic training, and he was able to keep his focus on his schoolwork at first, but soon his mind started to wander to other things. He hadn't done much serious dating in high school, and the opportunity just wasn't there at the Marine base in Cuba. But at the university, he was starting to realize that dating was more fun than he remembered. This was where he met a woman named Kathleen Leisner, who went by Kathy. Kathy was attending the university, working on a degree to become a teacher. She came from a wealthy family, her father being a Texas rice farmer and real estate developer. Their friends described the two as being in love at first sight, and they were all happy when they started dating. It wasn't long before Charles asked Kathy to marry him, and she said yes. The couple married in August of 1962 in Kathy's hometown of Needville, Texas. It was the first time Charles had seen his mother since he left to join the Marines. He worried about his mother being left with his father and his physical abuse. After the wedding, the couple moved from the dorms into an apartment and went back to their daily lives as college students. Except now, Charles' attention was on his wife instead of on his classes. His childhood had made him develop into a very insecure person. Funny how constantly being told you're worthless unless you perform perfectly will do that to a person. Charles was worried that at any moment, Kathy would realize that he was a terrible husband, so he started working on being the perfect husband at all times. He would walk her home from class every day, he got a part-time job so he could buy her gifts. He spent so much energy on making Kathy happy that he stopped focusing on his grades. When he realized that his grades were low enough to get the Marines to withdraw his scholarship, he began to panic, which just put him into a downward spiral. He tried to raise his grades before the semester ended, but he wasn't able to and the Marines sent him orders to return to active duty. Charles finally sat down and told Kathy all of the problems he had been having. He explained that he was so afraid of losing her that he let his grades slip and now he had to go back to active duty. He was sure that she was going to leave him. She assured her husband that that was not going to happen. She would finish school and then she could find a teaching job wherever the Marines stationed him. As hard as it was, Charles packed his bags and reported to Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. He was happy to be in the Marines when it meant he was able to escape his father, but now it meant leaving the love of his life and he had no motivation to be a good Marine. When he entered the military, the rigid environment was nothing compared to living under his father's rule, but after being out in the real world for a while, being in the Marines only reminded him of his father. He spent his time just getting by, no longer the exceptional Marine he once was. Now he struggled just to be average. One day he was out on a routine patrol in a jeep when their driver misjudged a turn and the vehicle rolled into a ditch and down an embankment. 
Both of them were injured, each with a few broken bones. What was worse was that they had rolled into a place where nobody would see them if they came looking. Slipping in and out of consciousness, Charles managed to lift the jeep off of his fellow Marine and dragged him up the hill to the road. When the next patrol came by, they found the two laying on the side of the road unconscious. Charles spent the next week in the hospital recovering from his injuries and other Marines came by and praised his bravery, but he didn't even remember doing it. It only added to his feelings of being a fraud. He was being praised for an action he only took unconsciously out of instinct. Then he was promoted to Lance Corporal because of his actions and the feelings got worse. Charles began feeling like the Marines were a surrogate for his father and he wanted to escape them now like he had escaped his father years before. Charles got involved in gambling and had loaned money to some other Marines. All of them had paid him back except one, so Charles tried to threaten him, but the man wasn't intimidated. Next, Charles pointed a gun in the man's face and demanded his money plus $15 interest. Now, the military-issued weapons were normally kept locked up, so the gun Charles was using was actually his own. He had smuggled it into the base, which was a big no-no. When the man reported Charles, he was charged and locked up in the brig. While there, he started writing in a journal. He had pages full of praise for Kathy and other pages where he recounted his childhood trauma. Then he had a whole section where he expressed his hatred for the Marines. He believed that they preyed on young, vulnerable men and then treated them poorly, like they were treating him. This is yet another example of a person causing problems in their life with their own actions and then blaming someone else. He failed out of school. He threatened someone with a gun. At what point was he treated unfairly? Charles was found guilty and sentenced to 30 days confinement and 90 days of hard labor. Not long after he completed his sentence, he received an honorable discharge from the Marines. When he returned to Texas, Kathy had graduated from college and was working as a biology teacher at a local high school. They were able to rent a small house in a quiet neighborhood and Charles became the scoutmaster for the local Boy Scout troop. What he really wanted was to go back to college, but without the military picking up the bill, he would have to find another way to pay for it. That meant asking his father. Charles Sr. was more than happy to pay his son's tuition. That meant Charles Jr. would be back under his control in some capacity. His father wanted to give him even more money, but Charles negotiated to have him only pay his tuition. He wanted to be the least indebted to his father that he could. Charles picked up in the mechanical engineering program right where he left off and was immediately back to a steady B average. He was making sure not to overextend himself, but soon he began resenting Kathy for being the breadwinner. He had been taught that the man is supposed to take care of his family, but now Kathy was working full-time, paying most of the bills while he went to school. I guess the idea that graduating and getting a job as a mechanical engineer would make him far more money than Kathy's teaching salary was lost on him. Not that it matters who makes the money, but with a little patience, it wouldn't have been an issue. Charles convinced himself that the problem was that he wasn't interested enough in mechanical engineering, so he switched his major to architecture and took on a part-time job to help bring in extra money. He began working part-time with the Texas Highway Department as a land surveyor. During this time, Charles was also trying to help his mother get out from under his father's fist. He hadn't been beating her regularly anymore, but that was only because she was too broken to resist his every demand. Charles wanted her to know that she deserved better. 
Of course, by now, Margaret had spent most of her life being beaten into submission, so change wouldn't come easy, but it would come. At the end of February of 1966, Margaret called her son and told him she was ready to leave his father. Charles jumped in his car and rushed to Florida where he prepared for a violent confrontation with his father, but the elder Charles wasn't there. The mother and son loaded boxes into his car and they headed back to Texas. Margaret was finally fleeing her husband's abuse. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the elder Charles that would end up killing her. Charles found Margaret an apartment nearby and she began working as a cook in a cafeteria. She didn't make a lot of money, but she had her freedom and that's all she really needed. She didn't know that Charles had taken a second job as a bill collector to cover half of her rent. Then his youngest brother got into trouble and needed to be bailed out of jail, so Charles quickly wired him the money so he wouldn't have to go crawling back to their father. Charles switched one of his jobs for a position as a bank teller that gave him more consistent hours and then Kathy got a second job working as an operator for the phone company. Along with schoolwork and two part-time jobs, Charles also had to take care of things for his mother. His father, being a controlling person, handled everything back in Florida, so Margaret needed a lot of help now that she was on her own. Then Charles Sr. started calling his son, pleading with him to help him get Margaret back. He didn't yell or threaten, he used manipulation, playing the lovesick old man. The stress began to overwhelm Charles. He was getting frequent headaches and he wasn't sleeping or eating. When Charles went to the doctor because of his headaches and exhaustion, the doctor prescribed him Dexedrine. Not surprisingly, this amphetamine gave Charles more energy, too much energy. He would impulsively use that energy to pack up his clothes and intended to drive his car until it ran out of gas, and then would stay wherever that was and live like a bum. He would be free of all responsibilities. A friend had showed up at Charles' house as he was headed out the door to begin his journey and was able to talk him down. The dexedrine gave him energy, but his anger and agitation was getting worse. When he got angry at Kathy and ended up striking her in the face, he was horrified that he was turning into his father. She accepted his apology and he promised never to do it again, but he couldn't keep that promise. After the second time, he returned to the doctor and was prescribed Valium. Now he had Valium to help him relax and Dexedrine to pick him up, living a healthy daily routine of taking an upper in the morning and a downer in the evening. The doctor also encouraged Charles to see a psychiatrist. Despite his fear of psychiatrists, he agreed to meet with Dr. Maurice Heatley at the end of March. During the meeting, the psychiatrist told Charles that he believed his parents' separation had triggered his mood swings and violent outbursts. Charles thought Dr. Heatley was wrong. You know, it's not like he was a professional who recognized that the stress of going to school, working two jobs, taking care of his mother, and fielding calls from his father were affecting him mentally. That's just crazy talk. No pun intended. The doctor told Charles that his aggression was an outlet for his stress. Then Charles snapped and said, Sometimes I think about going up the big clock tower in the middle of campus with a deer rifle and shooting people. Of course, psychiatrists are supposed to report when their patients make threats of harming themselves or other people, but only if they think the threat is credible. The doctor mistakenly believed that Charles was just venting his frustrations. At the time, it was understandable. Charles wasn't showing any signs of psychosis. He understood what was going on and seemed to be genuinely interested in solving the problem. 
Dr. Heatley set up another appointment for Charles and believed that they would be seeing each other regularly and that together they would work through Charles's problems. That would be the most logical scenario if the doctor was dealing with a patient man, but he wasn't. Charles wanted to fix the problem immediately, at any cost. Charles was sure that he'd become a complete failure and he was resolved to die. He knew that there would become a point where he would turn into his father. It had already started. The longer he waited, the more chance he had of hurting Kathy. The problem was that, if he were gone, his father would easily regain control of his mother. That was something that Charles wouldn't allow to happen. Then there was Kathy. She would be taken care of by her parents, but he knew that he would cause her an enormous amount of grief if he committed suicide. Charles contemplated his situation and finally came up with a plan that would solve all of his problems and not ruin his wife or his mother's lives. Suddenly, Charles's friends noticed that he had relaxed. He wasn't worrying about everything, especially the future. He would just hang out and enjoy himself. They were glad to have the old Charles back, not realizing what his relaxed attitude really meant. On July 31st, Charles began preparing to carry out his plan. He dropped Kathy off at her shift at the phone company and went to a hardware store where he purchased a new hunting knife. He also went to a 7-Eleven convenience store and bought a few tins of Spam. He picked his mother up from her job and they went to a movie before he dropped her off at her apartment. Then he went back home where he wrote letters. The first one was written at 6.45 p.m. on July 31st. It started, I don't quite understand what compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it's to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I don't really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I can't recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly reoccur and it takes a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful or progressive tasks. He also wrote, it was after much thought that I decided to kill my wife, Kathy, tonight after I pick her up from work at the telephone company. I love her dearly, and she's been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. I cannot rationally pinpoint any specific reason for doing this. I don't know whether it is selfishness, or if I don't want her to face the embarrassment that my actions would surely cause her. At this time, though, the prominent reason in my mind is that I truly do not consider this world worth living in and I am prepared to die, and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. I intend to kill her as painlessly as possible. Charles picked Kathy up from work and took her home. She was exhausted and got right into bed, but when her husband didn't join her, she asked him why. I have to run a little errand. I'll be right back, he answered. He arrived at his mother's apartment at about midnight, and when he went inside, she asked him why he was there, but he didn't answer. Charles tried to grab Margaret, but she ducked out of the way. After a brief struggle, Charles pulled out a knife and stabbed his mother in the chest. Once the blood had drained from her body, he placed her on the bed and wrote another note. This one was dated 12.30 a.m. on August 1st and it read, To whom it may concern, I have taken my mother's life. I am very upset about having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, then she is definitely there now. And if there is no life after, I have relieved her of her suffering here on earth. The intense hatred I feel for my father is beyond description. My mother gave that man the 25 best years of her life, and she finally took enough of his beatings, humiliation, and degradation and tribulations that I'm sure that nobody but she and he will ever know. 
He has chosen to treat her like a slut that you would bed down with, accept her favors, and throw a pittance in return. I am truly sorry that this is the only way I could see to relieve her suffering, but I think it was best. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love that woman with all my heart. If there exists a God, let him understand my actions and judge me accordingly. Charles placed that note under the covers with his mother and went to the bathroom to clean himself up. He didn't want his mother's body to be discovered soon, and he knew that a neighbor would come by in the morning to wake her up, so he wrote another note and placed it on the door. It read, Roy, I don't have to be at work today, and I was up late last night. I would like to get some rest. Please do not disturb me. Thank you, Mrs. Whitman. After driving back home, Charles slipped into his house and quietly crept into the bedroom. This time, he was going to carry out the murder while his victim was still asleep. He slowly pulled the sheet down to expose Kathy's chest and pulled the knife from its sheath on his waist. Then he plunged the knife directly into her heart. He stabbed her five times and she died right there on the bed. After killing his wife, Charles took a shower and sat down at the typewriter to continue his first note. When that ribbon ran out, he finished it by hand. At the bottom, he wrote instructions for what to do with their dog. Then he added that they could cremate his body after the autopsy. In the margin, he wrote 3 a.m., both dead. First thing in the morning, Charles called the phone company and told them Kathy was sick and wouldn't be able to come in. He pulled out an old footlocker he had from the Marines and began filling it with supplies. A flashlight, extension cord, sandwiches, batteries, ammunition, a transistor radio, a three-gallon jug of water, a three-gallon jug of gasoline, rope, a compass, an alarm clock, sunglasses, a pipe wrench, and spare clothes. He wouldn't use everything in the trunk, but he had the better-to-have-it-and-not-need-it-than-need-it-and-not-have-it approach to loading supplies. All of these items made the trunk too heavy to carry around, so Charles, being the pragmatic one, went out and rented a dolly. Then he went to a hardware store where he bought a machete, a locking pocket knife, and a reconditioned M1 carbine. He stored his purchases in the car and then walked to a gun store where he wrote bad checks for a large quantity of ammunition. The owner of the gun store mentioned that it was a lot of ammo and Charles explained that he was going on a trip to hunt feral hogs, something that had plagued the area for quite some time. Charles then went to a Sears, basically the Walmart of the past, and purchased a rifle case and a shotgun on credit. He went home with all his purchases and sawed the stock off of the shotgun. Then he loaded the shotgun, three rifles and three handguns into the trunk. Charles put on a pair of tan coveralls and a jacket and then he loaded the trunk onto the dolly. He called his mother's employer to let them know she was sick and wouldn't make it in that day. On campus, Charles rolled the dolly to the clock tower and loaded it into the elevator. The elevator didn't go all the way to the floor with the observation deck, so Charles had to lug the trunk up another three flights of stairs. At the top floor, Edna Townsley was the receptionist whose job it was to greet tourists interested in the view from the tower's observation deck. She assumed Charles was a maintenance man and approached him as he was digging in the box he had just carried up the stairs. When she got close, Charles spun around and struck her hard in the eye with the butt of a rifle. It broke her orbital bone, pushing it into her brain. As she twitched on the floor, he hit her a few more times in the back of the head. Then he dragged her body behind a couch. She wasn't dead, but she soon would be. 
As he started pulling his supplies out of his trunk, a young couple came inside from the observation deck. Completely startled that anyone else was up there, Charles just said hi and let them walk past, down the stairs. They didn't seem to be alarmed by the fact that Charles had a rifle in his hand. The man would later say he just assumed the guy was going to shoot pigeons. Before Charles could finish preparing his assault on the campus, people were interrupting him once again. A family of six was in town and wanted to take in the view from the top of the tower. By this time, Charles had barricaded the door to the stairs, but two teen boys managed to squeeze through. They were immediately met with a shotgun blast. Charles reloaded the gun, pointed it into the stairwell, and fired again, hitting two women. The two men who were taking up the rear realized someone was shooting, and they ran down the stairs to an office to try to call for help. Charles was able to set up his guns and supplies so they would be within reach. Then he went inside and fired a shot into the back of Edna's head. Charles was now ready to begin his last stand. At about 11.45 a.m., August 1st, 1966, Claire Wilson and her boyfriend Thomas Ekman were on their way to their anthropology class when they heard a loud crack. Thomas glanced at the road, thinking it may have been a car backfiring, but when he turned back, Claire was on the ground in a pool of blood. With Charles's first shot from the tower, he took his first life, but it wasn't Claire's. She was eight months pregnant at the time, and the bullet went into her belly, shattering her unborn child's skull. Thomas dropped down and tried to stop the bleeding. He had no way of knowing the condition of the baby. The child wasn't his, but he cared about Claire and her baby all the same. A few seconds later, Thomas was hit in the chest and killed. It was determined that Charles would have been able to see that Claire was pregnant, and he was a good enough shot that hitting her in the stomach would have been intentional. His first target on the clock tower was an unborn child. People fled the immediate area, but soon realized that where they were wasn't as safe as they thought. Charles was able to make shots much farther than they had anticipated. Roy Del Schmidt was an electrician heading to a service call on campus when he saw police barricades and stopped. At approximately 500 yards away, he believed he was safe, but he was soon shot and killed. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a KLRN news bulletin. Once again, a sniper has taken up a position on the observation deck, on the tower, on the main building, on the campus of the University of Texas, and is firing with his high-powered rifle at people on the campus. Eventually, police from all over the city were converging on the area around the tower, but they only had pistols which were useless in this situation. Citizens from the area were coming out with their own rifles, trying to take out the sniper, but Charles's position was too well protected. He had mentioned years earlier that the tower would be the perfect place to hold off an entire army, and he was right. Authorities realized that they were not going to be able to stop him from the outside of the tower. Fortunately, most people had fled the area, and Charles didn't have any targets outside of keeping the police at bay. Authorities put their best shooter on a plane so he could attempt to stop the gunman. But once the plane was close enough, Charles stood up, put three rounds into the plane's fuselage, and the pilot immediately aborted the mission. Officer Houston McCoy learned from the campus janitors that there was a maintenance tunnel running under the tower. This meant they could make it inside without having to attempt to cross the sniper's line of fire. Officer McCoy, Officer Jerry Day, and Public Safety Officer Dub Cowan made their way to the basement of the tower and up to the main floor. 
At the same time, Officer Ray Martinez took a chance and sprinted across the mall and into the doors of the tower, where he was met with surprise by the men. Then, retired Air Force gunner Alan Crom also showed up. He was a civilian, but the officers would take any help they could get. On the 27th floor, they found MJ Gabor in an office trying to call for an ambulance. One of his sons and his sister were dead, and his wife and other son were critically injured. Officer Day escorted the man back downstairs, and the rest of the team continued to the observation deck. They found MJ Gabor's injured family, and Officer Cowan stayed with them, trying to treat their wounds. The remaining men approached the door to the observation deck. Officers on the ground radioed in Charles's position so the team inside knew exactly where he was. Officer Martinez crept up to the observation deck while Allen circled around the other direction. Charles suddenly noticed Allen around the south corner of the tower and as he swung around to engage, Martinez and McCoy charged at the sniper, with Martinez unloading his revolver. Only one round hit Charles in the ribs, but he had so much adrenaline coursing through his veins it didn't even slow him down. As he swung his rifle around to take aim at Martinez, McCoy jumped forward and hit Charles twice with a shotgun, once in the face and once in the chest. There was no amount of adrenaline that would save him from that, but he was still moving. Officer Martinez took the shotgun and fired one more shot directly in Charles's face. His body stopped moving. Over the course of 96 minutes, Charles Whitman had killed 14 people and wounded 33 others. David Gunby was shot that day, but during surgery, doctors discovered that he only had one kidney, and it had been severely damaged. For the next 35 years, David lived with constant pain and underwent dialysis three times a week. In 2001, he chose to stop dialysis and died a week later on November 7, 2001. His cause of death was listed as homicide, bringing Charles's death toll to 17. BBC Television News now presents a special program on today's mass murder in the capital city. Here is KTBC Television News Editor Neil Spells. Good evening. One of history's worst mass murders occurred here in Austin today. By official count tonight, 49 persons were hit by gunfire. There are 16 dead and 33 injured. It started last night when a man reportedly killed his wife and his mother. That same man apparently rounded up an arsenal and supplies this morning and then went to the observation deck of the University of Texas Tower. It was then that terror rained down from the tower. In 1966, the idea that someone would go up into a clock tower and start indiscriminately shooting people was a foreign idea. Mass shootings had happened in the U.S., but not at a frequency where people had just become used to them like we are today. Back then, leadership in the area needed to find a reason why Charles was a fluke and this wasn't going to happen again anytime soon. They wanted to ensure people they were safe on campus. Texas Governor John Connolly put together a commission to come up with a scientific reason for the shooting. They did an autopsy on Charles Whitman where, despite serious damage from two shotgun blasts, Dr. Coleman Deschenar said he found a small tumor in Charles's brain which may have altered his behavior and caused him to carry out his murder spree. The media picked up the story and ran with it and now that's the common reason people give for Charles Whitman's attack. However, the commission, made up of neurosurgeons, psychiatrists, and pathologists, determined it to be inconclusive and some even say it's unlikely. They won't even confirm it was a tumor and many say it was a different type of mass. 
The mass was found near his amygdala, which would have affected his impulse control. They would have expected to see Charles snap and go on a sudden wild rampage. Not a meticulously planned out attack, starting with his mother and wife and carried out over a prolonged period of time. Of course, anyone who actively shoots a woman who is eight months pregnant in the belly so they can kill the unborn child is mentally ill. But Charles was not an innocent victim of an unknown brain tumor like the media has promoted. He was abused into believing that perfection was the only option, and when he couldn't achieve that, he chose to end his life while taking so many others with him. Those were his actions, the actions of a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.